Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. Romans 13, 11. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. You may be seated. He will come again in glory to judge the living, and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We repeat that line every Sunday. You'll do it in just a few minutes. As Christians, we recite the Nicene Creed from which that line is taken. And the creeds sum up the essentials of the Christian faith because they sum up the Holy Scriptures for us. So part of being a Christian is believing or trusting, if you like that word better, and I actually do. Part of being a Christian is trusting then that Jesus will return. And when He returns, He will judge every single human being who has ever lived, including you and me. He will judge both the living and the dead. And that all of us will finally, at the end, meet our Lord face to face. This is a reality, brothers and sisters. And for those of us that meet Him face to face, who have been baptized, who have persevered in the faith, when the faith, which is a gift by God through the Spirit, we will see Him face to face, and we will be ushered into the communion of saints and into life with the blessed Trinity in that new existence in the world to come, that new reality that awaits for us. But those who have rejected those who had seen the face of our Lord Jesus Christ in another and heard the words of the gospel and yet rejected, will meet our Lord face to face. Their knees will bow also, but they will be given over to separation, eternal separation from the communion of saints and the divine life of the blessed Trinity. For our Lord is coming to judge. He says it himself in John chapter 5, verse 22. Our Lord says, For the Father judges no one. For the Father judges no one. But He has given all judgment over to the Son. Now, brothers and sisters, I must say that preaching on the arrival of Jesus as judge has fallen out of vogue in most churches today. And yes, I understand that some of us may have been raised in traditions where the preaching of God's judgment was never not preached on, but we're finding it less and less in pulpits, because I don't like judgment as much as the next guy. Judgment isn't a fun thing. But brothers and sisters, if you plug your ears to the reality of Christ returning as judge, you will either miss the grace that is given to us as His children in that judgment, or you yourself will in fact turn away from Him and be judged according to your own works that cannot 
allow you and will not allow you to enter into the kingdom of God. One theologian says it this way, and hear me clearly this morning. He says this, the absence of the last judgment contributes to contemporary preachings frequently noticed dullness and lack of urgency into its Father Christmas God, who is not even distantly related to the Holy One of Israel, not to mention the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Woe that you and I would enter into this Advent season, this first Sunday in the church year, with some understanding that God is some Father Christmas God that's just trying to get us through four Sundays to get to Christmas where we share presents. No, brothers and sisters, this first Sunday of Advent in every one of our three-year lectionary readings is about the judgment of our Lord, His second Advent. Advent from the word in Latin, Adventus, which means arrival, like the coming of a king or a great judge. And brothers and sisters, Advent is not simply preparation for Christmas. We begin at the judgment seat of our Lord Jesus Christ. As Anglicans, as Orthodox Anglicans, and as just Christians, Orthodox Christians in general, we know that the Scripture teaches us about the final judgment of Jesus. And this first Sunday of Advent is devoted to it. On this Sunday, we begin at the end of all things with the judgment seat of Christ and His glorious return. And then finally, over the next several weeks, you'll notice that we work our way backward in time to the incarnation, finally to Christmas. You might not know this, but if you uh, read many of the lectionaries that are out there in so many other churches, the mentioning or any mentioning of God's judgment has been cut out, removed, too controversial. A good preacher who cares about tithes and offerings ought not preach that God, in fact, sends people to hell who run from Him, flee from Him, turn away from Him. Churches that want to exist ought not to preach on the final judgment of Christ, for it cuts at us. It causes us to remember that without holiness, we will not see God face to face. In the Gospel of Matthew, our reading in chapter 24, well, actually, before we get there, let me say this. In the Gospel of Matthew itself, the entire book of Matthew, there are about 148 pericopes or little stories or parables or accounts, or about 148 of them, self-contained little units of our Lord. 148. And no fewer than 60 of them, no fewer than 60, deal explicitly with the final judgment of our Lord Jesus Christ. 60 out of 148. We're often mesmerized in the Gospel of Matthew, as we should be, with that great sermon on the Mount. That wonderful sermon on what's called now the Mount of Beatitudes, where, our Jesus, instruct, where Jesus instructs His holy apostles and the crowd gathered there. And He does so about the ethics of the Christian life, how to live as a believer, how that impacts the way that we exist. We think back to the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. His teaching 
of beware of practicing your righteousness before others, his teaching on anxiety. We remember these things, these wonderful teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. But this sermon, chapters 5 through 7, for all its beauty, for all its ethical implications for the Christians, things that we should follow, of course, it does not stand apart itself even from the final judgment of Jesus. For the end of that sermon, Jesus says these two things. The first, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is what? Cut down and thrown into the fire. He goes on to say that, well, he goes on to say this, and these are words that I think all of us as believers should read with fear, holy fear and reverence of God and trepidation. Our Lord says, not everyone who says to me, and this is right after the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Our Lord as judge. Now the future judgment of Jesus the Messiah is the very reality that actualizes the grace of God. Let me say that again. The future judgment of Jesus the Messiah is the very reality that actualizes God's grace to us. So what do I mean? I mean this. That to omit the future judgment of Jesus from our theology, to, um, to get rid of it, to get rid of this eschatology that Jesus is returning to judge the living of the dead, is to in fact render the gospel... The good news of God's grace to us in Jesus, empty, meaningless, and hollow. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a saint like me. Are those the words here? No. It is the grace that saved a wretch like me, a wretch like you. The fact that I would, would be called a saint by God through Jesus in spite of my wretchedness, that's the grace. That's the good news. Only when we acknowledge our wretchedness before God is grace finally something to behold, something truly amazing, something that we cannot fully comprehend but we receive. Can you imagine for a moment, um, and this is hard to imagine as as I was prepping uh, for this sermon this week, um, I was, had a phone call with a family member, and I wasn't very nice, I'll put it that way. Matter of fact, I, I know, I, I, without a shadow of a doubt, I broke um, the fifth commandment, honoring my father and mother, I know it. The way I talked was, was dishonoring to my mother, to one of my parents, my, my mother herself on the phone. But imagine... For me, uh, with me for just a minute, brothers and sisters, that that all of those all of those sins, the sins that no one else knows about, the sins that you um, are being bombarded with, 
those times in life that you would be shamed almost to the point of non-existence if you knew that someone else knew about them. Imagine for a moment that your life, the videotape of your life, everything that you've done, the things that you are ashamed of, the sin, the good as well, all of these things were playing in a theater and a few of your closest friends whom if you're anything like me, I'm sure that you've had sinful thought even against your own friends. They're sitting in this theater and they're watching all of this play through the course of your life. And at the end of that, they come to you and they give you a hug and in tears they say, hey, I love you. I love you. I receive you. You see, uh, brothers and sisters, it's it's that... um, It's that embarrassment of our lives and the sin that God sees and then He judges us as being in His Son and these sins are wiped clean, forgotten. We often forget that believers, that you and I will in fact face a judgment in which we will give account of our lives, of every thought, of every word that we have said, of every action that we have as Anglicans we say, done or left undone, we will give an account. Now finally, in the end, we will be granted entrance into the community of the Blessed Trinity in the new heaven and the new earth. But we will stand before God Himself. 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We will stand there in his presence. Our Lord says in Matthew 12, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Brothers and sisters, there's a link between the judgment of Christ that is coming in the future and the grace that he gives to us in judging us in saying that we, of course, are pardoned from all of our sins. Judgment is necessary for grace. Let me turn to Matthew 24. We know, brothers and sisters, that there's a link between judgment and grace. So what does this mean, though, for us now, for the way that you live, for the way that I live and exist in this life as believers? Let me sum it up in two phrases here. The first is this. You don't know when he's returning. So endure to the end. You don't know when he is returning as judge, so endure to the end. And the second is this. Wake up, brothers and sisters, and walk in love. Wake up and walk in love. Matthew 24 After our Lord uh, talks about this cosmic return of himself, the Son of Man, Jesus, returning on the clouds, this cosmic uh, event, we're told that at that event, or when that event comes, no one knows the time, not even the Son knows, only the Father. Verse 43 um, He goes on to give this analogy of the master of the house. He says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, 
For the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not dis- expect. Again, this doesn't mean that when our Lord returns, if he returns before you die, that if you're engaged in sin at that very moment, that you're like not redeemed and you're going to hell because of that, and you're like, you know, that's why you're to be obedient. No, we are to be obedient because our Lord has said to stay awake, to persevere to the end. And here's an, an, an illustration I want to give to you. The devil wants to lull us to sleep in this life. He wants to lull us to sleep. How many of you have read um, uh, Pilgrim's Progress by Bunyan? Okay, wonderful. If you haven't, there's a great uh, children's edition. That if you have grandkids or kids, you can read. There's actually a couple of them that you can read to your kids or grandkids, and it's a wonderful kind of uh, summation. But you'll remember that Christian comes to this place called the Enchanted Grounds. Do you remember this? He comes to the place called the Enchanted Grounds um, where it says that the air tends to make those who come there drowsy. They begin to want to sleep and to wait and not to continue on their pilgrimage to that celestial city. And brothers and sisters, if we are not careful, as members of the kingdom of God, we will find ourselves anesthetized by the things this culture offers and we will find ourselves asleep and not awake when our Lord returns. We see that Paul himself has something to say about this in Romans 13. He talks about walking in love and in light. He says this, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. How do we live being awake in this world? We live in the love of our Lord. We talked about in Sunday school this morning that we are called to be um, martyrs, that is, witnesses of the love of Christ to the world. St. Augustine said that all of the sin in the world is because our loves are not properly ordered, that we love another instead of our spouse or in place of our spouse, that we we love something over here that should be fifth or seventh or eighth or twelfth down on the totem pole, but we love it as first or second or third, that we are to walk in love in this life, he goes on to remind us, Paul does in verse 11, besides this, you know the time. It's like he's writing to us right now in this moment, brothers and sisters, that the hour has come for you to wake up, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. There's um, this song, uh, it's a very existential song. I'm embarrassed to even say it here, but I think it gets at this, at this point here that Paul is making. I'm not, I'm not advocating this artist to you. I'll just say his name, John Mayer. All right, get over it. <laughs> Stop this train. You ever heard that song? You should listen to it. Stop this train. He talks about life, this existential angst in life, because the train of life is continuing. It's not going to stop. You're going to get older. Your parents are going to get older. You're going to face death 
whether death of a loved one suddenly or over time, you yourself, if our Lord doesn't return, you're going to face death. And Paul is saying to us, as he did to those Christians in Rome, wake up from the sleep, from slumber, for salvation. Every moment in time is nearer for you and for me than it was a few seconds ago, a few days ago. So walk in love, in obedience to our Lord who is returning as judge. He says the night is far gone and the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let me close with this. We as Christians who await the coming of our Lord are to walk in love and to do so in the light. The devil is constantly getting us to move our lives into the darkness where no one can see. No one can know the sin. No one can know the the depths of depravity and the angst and the suffering. Brothers and sisters, walk in the light. Walk in the light. We see, and it goes without saying, the sexual ethic of our culture. We see that Rome itself is nothing different here. The orgies, the drunkenness, the sexual immorality, it's rampant. Don't walk in it. For us and for our culture today, pornography is that thing that that encapsulates so many men. It's this hidden sin. Confess it. Get it out into the open. The Lord forgives as the judge of those who are found in Him. Paul goes on to say, quit quarreling the fights with your, with your spouse or your children over meaningless things, the arguments we are engaged in as our life is continuing on that train, as every day we're closer to salvation than we were a day ago. Stop it. Quit. Put on Jesus Christ in the light. Paul says in verse 14, He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. What does all this mean? Brothers and sisters, strive for holiness until our Lord returns. Not so that you might be saved. You are saved. You are adopted as children, but you live in obedience as an icon of the love of our Lord so that others might come in to the knowledge and the love of God and be saved. Let us quit being lulled to sleep as we live our Christian lives. Let us be liberated because of the promise of the future judgment to live now as well as we will be living for eternity with the communion of saints in the blessed Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let me finally close with this prayer from our 1928 prayer book. Would you pray with me and listen to these words? Imprint upon our hearts, O Lord, such a dread of thy judgments and such a grateful sense of thy goodness to us as may make us both afraid and ashamed to offend thee. And above all, keep in our minds a lively remembrance of that great day 
in which we must give a strict account of our thoughts, words, and actions to him whom thou has appointed the judge of the quick and the dead, thy son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.